Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans and chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Today we'll be in verses 9 through 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we've reprinted those verses on the back of the bulletin. Uh, We know that most families have rules, rules that set families apart. Today we're going to see the house rule for God's family. The house rule for God's family is love one another. Love one another. The Church of Jesus Christ is a family. And last week, in the beginning of our membership sermon series, we're spending three weeks looking at church membership, we asked a simple question. What are you? And we found out that in Jesus Christ, you are a member. You've been made a member of Christ and a member of his church. Jesus builds his church by adding individual people to local churches. For we're not just utilitarian parts of a body. You serve there, you serve there, and do your role and forget about the rest of us. We're actually also a family, and that's what we'll see this morning. And the house rule for God's family is love one another. We'll see that in Romans 12. Before I read verses 9 through 16, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And brothers or sisters in Christ, take this time and ask God to speak to you through his word this morning. Take a minute to ask him that. Lord, our hearts long for the day when, as we sang, with Christ we will stand in glory. We get to taste glory by sharing fellowship with you as Father, Son, and Spirit. That glorious, loving community you have invited us into, your family, is sweet. Your fellowship is sweet. But we live in a world ravaged still by sin and the effects of sin. So help us this morning with great gratitude in our hearts. Continue to receive the gift of the church by faith. Thank you that you make people who didn't know each other beforehand into a body. And thank you that we're not just a body, but we're your family. Thank you that you sing over us. Thank you that you are more pleased with this worship service and the gathering of the saints than even we are to be here. You're a glorious and mighty God. Now, Lord, as we open your word, we know that you are going to do great things in our midst. For each of our hearts, you have something planned to feed and nourish your children, to call some back to repentance, to call some to faith for the first time. Have your way with our hearts and give us eyes to see your glory in your word right now. In Christ's name, we thank you and pray. Amen. Romans chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 16. Romans 12, 
9 through 16. This is the great and glorious word of our Heavenly Father. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. These are some of the house rules for God's family, but we can summarize all of them with that single phrase. The house rule, if you walk into God's house, what's the plaque above the mantle or above the picture frames of all the kids? It says, love one another. What is the house rule for God's family? Love one another. Look at verse 10. We see that line right there. Love one another. Well, we have to ask, well, with what? And what does Paul mean when he tells the church to love one another? What does he mean? What, what feelings should that elicit in our hearts and minds? Love is an overused word. How many of you use the word love too much? <laughs> I love my wife and I love coffee. Oh, you're using the same word. I love my parents and I love board games. I love my children. And I love the sound of sparklers on the 4th of July. You're using the same word. Love is an overused word. When we hear the word love, let's be honest, we've used it too much. It's lost some of its luster. Well, look at what Paul is actually saying. Verse 10 again. Love one another. Okay, Paul, how? What kind of love? And then he says, with brotherly affection. Brotherly love. Can you guess what that word is? Brotherly love. Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. We're supposed to love each other with Philadelphia. Phileo is one of the Greek words for love. There's four. Phileo is family love or brotherly love. And Paul says, love one another with Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. When you read the news about our local city, Philadelphia, it's not known in the news for brotherly love. It's known for crime and violence and anger and animosity and political turmoil. And so the church is supposed to be Philadelphia. Oh no, what does that mean for us? Well, the church is supposed to be a new city, a new family, a new collection of people, like a city where people come from all over and congregate there. We're, we're supposed to be, as a church, the city of brotherly love, and a city that stands in contrast to the cities of man, which are characterized in the streets back then and today 
by selfishness and the strong taking advantage of the weak. Not so in God's church. We're supposed to be the city of brotherly love that people are welcome into, that all might see God's family lives by a different set of rules. The house rule here is love one another. So if you're in Christ, you've been added to God's family. You are told to look at one another and look around the room and see family. I talked to somebody this week and they said that this church for them is more family than they ever had. Church can be that. We are called to be a family. So let's do what I asked us to do last week. I said for a minute, look around the room. We're going to do it a little bit longer today. Look around the room. You have permission to look around the room. You don't have to look at me. This is a family reunion. Look around the room. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says this to the church. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So look around the room again or think of those who are part of our church family who aren't here today. If you see a younger woman as you look around the room, she is your sister. You have sisters. If you see a younger man as you look around the room, he's a brother. You've got brothers. If you see an older woman, she's a mother. You've got mothers. And if you see an older man, he's a father in the family. You've got fathers. Verse 10, again, this is what Paul means. Love one another with brotherly affection. Philadelphia, consider your church family actually a family. And the house rule for God's family is love one another. It sounds simple, doesn't it? I could just stand there. Paul says love each other. Just love each other. Well, isn't it interesting that in Paul's letters, not just this one to Romans, the Romans, in all, almost all of his letters, he has to remind them to love one another. He has to remind them to be patient with one another. This is not easy. Loving one another should have been easy, but sin has ruined our relationships. Sin ruined our relationship with God. It messed us up with God. Sin ruined our relationship with ourselves. We don't always trust ourselves. We don't always love ourselves. We don't always care for ourselves. And sin ruined our relationship with one another. Parents and children, spouses, church members even. Love is harder than it was supposed to be because of sin. And yet Jesus Christ came to defeat sin. And he has done that. He has purchased the church for himself where we are given the privilege and responsibility to live in light of the gospel that Jesus has defeated sin for us. So we need to love one another. But sometimes even following the simplest rule is hard. Uh, think about some of the house rules you had growing up. Think about where you grew up and maybe one of the rules you had growing up. Raise your hand if this was one of your rules. Always turn the lights off when you leave a room. All right, all right. And raise your hand if all the lights were always turned off. Okay, no hands go up. I turned lights off all week. It's like my job at home is to turn the lights off. Everyone else's job is to turn them on. How about this? No dessert until you've cleaned your plate. Mmm, there you go. Okay. How about don't use your outside voice inside the house? Yes. All right, how about this one? Uh, don't climb on the stack of TV trays to the left of the fridge so you can get on top of the fridge to your dad's secret stash of Oreos that he keeps in the orange Tupperware. 
Yes, all right, two of us. You grew up in my house. Why are all the TV trays bent, Dave? Oh, gee, I don't know. That was just in the Matchett house, and we had that Matchett house rule. But we loved each other because we were a family. The church is a family that should stand in contrast to the cities of man and be our own Philadelphia, characterized not by selfishness and the strong taking advantage of the weak. So now we'll take some time this morning and walk through what we read and look at these house rules for God's family that all fit under the main rule, love one another. We have eight verses, so we'll have one rule for each verse just to keep it simple. Rule number one, verse nine. Here's the rule. Love and hate the right things. Love and hate the right things. Verse nine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Well, here we're called to genuine love. Verse 9 again, let love be genuine. What is true love? What is genuine love? True, genuine love is not just the love, happy, smiley feelings. It's loving the right things and then necessarily, by extension of loving the right things, hating the right things. Okay, it says abhor what is evil. Hate evil. If we're going to love truly, we must hate evil. And then the end of the verse, hold fast to what is good. And this has always been a challenge. In Paul's day, it was a challenge. And even hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah's day, Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and who call good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for for bitter. Sin causes humans to sometimes call good things evil and evil things good. And so in the church, we have to have our priorities straight. We have to know to call good good, and we have to call evil evil. The solution is not a half solution. Just calling the good things good leaves out genuine true love. We must call evil things evil if we are to have genuine love. Think about it for a minute. Loving good requires that we hate evil. It's a requirement, a logical requirement. For instance, if you love the cardboard fort you built in the basement, you spent all day building it, and your older sibling, this may or may not be autobiographical from this past week, and your older sibling comes and destroys the fort, you're going to hate that, right? You're going to be mad about that because you loved the thing and you hate the destruction of the thing you loved. Love and hate naturally, logically go together. If you love trees, you'll hate deforestation. If you love justice, you'll hate injustice. In fact, we can learn something about what you love as we talk to you once we learn the things you hate. That's how we can learn what you love. If you hate injustice, and you talk about injustice all the time, you hate it, you hate it, you hate it, we know you love justice. Love and hate for true, genuine love, Paul says, characterized by his church, the church, we need to love and hate properly. Here are some more. Because Paul's call to the church is not be this community that hates all the outsiders and hates everything out there. We, we want to hate the evil in our own midst, the sin in our own hearts, and the sin that is racking and ruin, ruining and ravaging our own community. So, for instance, if you love purity, you will hate pornography. If you love purity, you will hate 
pornography. You will ask God to help you hate pornography more. If you love children and the beautiful innocence of children, you'll hate groups that are intentionally harming and confusing young children. If you love children and their innocence, you will hate the betrayal and stealing of that innocence from children in our culture. If you love work that honors God, you'll hate laziness. If you love the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sinners can be saved by grace through faith, you will hate false gospels. The false gospel that says you can earn your way to God if you're good enough, or if you give enough money, or if you do enough good stuff, you'll hate that. You'll hate the prosperity gospel, which says, come to Jesus, give us all your money, and you'll be blessed. You'll never get sick again. You'll never be poor again. you got to be kidding me. You'll hate the prosperity gospel if you love the true gospel. Genuine love must hate the right things. Think about in the church. If you love community, if you love that the church is a family, if you love that, you'll hate gossip. Because you love the community, you love the family, you love the church. In fact, here's a test. If you tell us how much you love this church family, you love us, you love us, you love us, but then you engage in gossip about us behind our backs— instead of hating the gossip so much that you say to the people gossiping, hey, let's not do this. Let's go to those people we're gossiping about and resolve our issues so we don't spread more and more dissension in the church. If you don't do that, we will necessarily question the genuineness of your statement. I love this church. I love the church family. If you love church family and community, you'll hate Gossip. Paul says if the church is going to be real, characterized by genuine love, we must love the right things and hate the right things. Now, some of you have a really easy time loving what God loves. I mean, isn't it easy to love beauty? Ah, oh, a sunrise. How many of you hate sunrises? Too early. How, you hate watching videos of beautiful sunrises, right? How many of you hate like a baby giggling? You're not supposed to hate that, right? Right? Some of you, you love beauty. It's easy for you. You love generosity. It's easy for you. Your heart lines up with the heart of God in these things. You love forgiveness. You love fairness. You love justice. But some of you really struggle with hating what God hates. True love does both. We in the church will need God's help to love what God loves and hate what God hates hates. Love must be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. One warning before I go on. Some of you are thinking, oh, I have permission to be miserable and bitter and angry all the time now because I am just hating what God hates. If you are known by everyone as someone who is miserable and angry and bitter all the time. You did not get permission from me to keep going on in that. You might need God's help to love more fully because we, the church, are the ones who are called to love even our enemies. We need to be careful. So, rule number one, probably the hardest of all these house rules, love and hate the right things. That's rule number one. Love one another, love and hate the right things. Look at rule number two now in verse 10. The rule is love with honor. If you're keeping notes, love with honor. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
All right, that word honor is a word that uh, we don't use as much today, but honor is an economic word. What are they selling the loaves of bread for at market today? Well, they're selling it for a dollar. Well, that's the honor. That's the value that the market has assigned to the loaf of bread. And when you buy a loaf of bread at market value, you're paying the honor. You're paying the value of it. Well, Paul says that we need to pay the value of honor that is owed to our brothers and sisters in the church family. It's also used in military and government situations. Like if the governor comes to your house, you should probably clean up beforehand. We show honor to the station that has been assigned to someone, particularly our government and military superiors. So what value, it's an honor and economic value word, what value do your brothers and sisters in God's family actually have? How valuable are the people in this church family? Well, what does Jesus Christ think? What does Jesus Christ think? How valuable were you and how valuable is your brother or sister in Christ? 1 Peter 1, 18 tells us, 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you were ransomed, so a, a payment was made for you. What's the price? Ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So we're supposed to show honor. You were ransomed. If you're in Christ, you were bought at a price more than silver or gold. So what is the cost? How valuable does Christ say our church family is? Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus purchased you with his blood on the cross. He died in your place. Think about this. And think about your brothers and sisters in the church family. Outdo one another in showing honor. How valuable. The king of the cosmos thought your life was worth his life. Now show that honor to your church family. Treat them as a blood-bought son or daughter of the king. And don't just show it begrudgingly. Verse 10 again, outdo one another in showing honor. But it's not a competition, okay? We uh, have a, a saying in our house, and I've said this before, we're a you-first family. Well, I remember the one day when they got into a fight, no, you go first, no, you go first, no, I want to let everyone else go first. It became a competition. We're supposed to outdo one another in showing love. It's not a fight. So rule number two is love with honor. Treat one another as blood-bought, purchased by the king of the cosmos, sons or daughters in the royal family. Love with honor. Verse uh, 11 is rule number three. We'll call it love with enthusiasm. Love with enthusiasm. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Well, slothfulness is sluggishness or laziness. If we've been added to God's family, we shouldn't take that for granted. We should be willing to participate, willing to pray for the needs of others, willing to connect with each other, willing to serve and give and participate in the ministry and mission of the church to make disciples. And the most obvious way to take this the wrong way is to take the gospel for granted. The gospel is incredible news. Sinners can be saved by the precious gift of Jesus Christ. It's by grace through faith, but when you get a gift and you take it for granted— that shows that you don't care. It shows that you don't respect the gift. When we take the gospel for granted, that's the worst. And so as a church family, we are a reminder of the gospel to each other. 
The worship service each Lord's Day is the reminder of the gospel. So this is your gospel reminder. Don't take the gospel for granted. And what happened in the gospel is that you have been added to the family of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. So don't be sluggish. Don't be slothful. Serve with enthusiasm. And that's that rule. Love with enthusiasm. That's rule three. Hopefully you're seeing so far that when you get added to a church family, you're committing to be a family member. We're going to start moving a little bit quicker now through the remaining rules, but hopefully you're noticing the theme. The big banner rule for the church is love one another. Well, rule four is in verse 12. Pray with joyful hope. Pray with joyful hope. That's the rule. Verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. If you've grown up in a family, you know this. Families hope together. Families wait for vacations together. Families wait for the news to come in together. Families cry together. Families hope and are patient in tribulation with one another. When a family gets a phone call about an accident or a heart attack or a diagnosis or a breakup or a failure or an arrest, that difficult assignment becomes the whole family's business. The whole family then has to pray together. The whole family has to hope together. The whole family shares their burdens and fears together. The family rejoices in hope as much as they can as they go through that trial. But a family, like a church family, must be patient together. And so what's the action step? The action step Because this is a church family, and every week someone or 10 or 20 or 30 of us are going through a trial, and we need each other. So the action step is at the end of the verse, be constant in prayer. This place needs to be a house of prayer. We've got to be praying. We can't forget to pray for our church family. We're praying for you. Pray for us. Lift one another up in prayer. If we forget about prayer, we're going to try and build the church family on our own strength and personality and gifts and abilities instead of Christ and the victory he bought for us. So we need to be constant in prayer. So the rule, pray with joyful hope. Rule five is in verse 13. Share what God gave you. Share what God gave you. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, that word contribute, you know that. It just means share. Share our resources, our time, our energy, our resources, the gifts we have, the skills we have. And look at the final word there, show hospitality. I intentionally decided to bring up the word Philadelphia earlier because this word is very similar to Philadelphia. Hospitality is the word philoxenia. Okay, so philo, phileo means love, family love, and xenia means others, outsiders, people who are different. Maybe you've heard the word xenophobic. Someone who's xenophobic is someone who's afraid of strangers. Someone who's xenophobic is someone who doesn't want to be around people who are different than them. That's xenophobia. Phobia is fear, fear of others, fear of different. Paul says we're not just supposed to be okay with others and outsiders and welcoming new people in. He says, be philoxenia, be xenia lovers. We should love and welcome strangers. We're building a family because Christ is adding people, different kinds of people, to our family. So we need to be welcoming. 
We need to make sure that if we see someone we don't know at church on Sunday, introduce yourself. And maybe you're a new person here, and the person next to you is new, and so you don't know each other. So introduce yourselves. Say hi. Oh, I'm newer here too. That's great. What's your name? Hey, how can I pray for you? We need to be lovers of the outsiders. The doors need to be open to visitors and newcomers and people maybe who are a little bit different than us. Not only that, we contribute to the needs of the saints. We pool our resources. And one of the resources we have, which is very valuable in our society, is not money, but time. Time is a great resource you have to share sacrificially with your church family. When you come early for life groups and you get to know other people in the small group discussions, you're sharing time. When you stay after the service and you pray and you cry with someone or you, you rejoice with someone, you're sharing time. When you, throughout the week, send a text message, I'm praying for you, or how can I pray for you? Or when you send an email or, or you visit someone throughout the week, you're sharing time. We all share time with those who we live at at home or where you lived growing up. But our household is now the whole church, so we share our time with one another. Over the past seven months, we've been doing something called dinner groups here. And in dinner groups, a number of you opened your home to have dinners at your house with people you didn't know. You were showing hospitality. You were contributing by using your house to host. In the coming weeks, we're going to announce a, a new initiative to have more small groups started in homes. And we're going to need some of you to open your home, not just for a couple dinners, but for a longer season than that. So stay tuned for that opportunity. We're going to be talking more about small groups in a couple of weeks. And so we're a family. Some of us have orange shirts on today. But the people with orange shirts on today, and someone has an orange shirt that isn't a VBS shirt, and that's okay too. But we served this week as a church family, and the people with orange shirts on were here, and the rest of you were praying for us all week long we served together. We shared the life and ministry of the church, and it was a glorious, exhausting, but glorious week. So what do we do? We share what God gave you. That is rule number five. Rule number six, seek God's best for all. This is going to be hard. Look at verse 14. Seek God's best for all is the rule. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, here Paul takes a little bit of an aside from the family care, right, all these family care verses, to talk about how to deal with our enemies, those who persecute us, those who hate us. But think about what Paul has said so far, as God is adding people from different places to a church family. Since we're going to be a place that's hospitable to strangers, since we're a new family, we're, we're going to live differently than the cities of man. We're going to treat our enemies not like they treat us. We're not going to persecute back when we've been persecuted. We're going to return love and blessing for hate and persecution. And that means we need to forgive. That means we need to forgive. And forgiveness is really hard, isn't it? It's costly, isn't it? Isn't it hard? Uh, often in counseling, I'm in my office and someone will say, you know, Dave, I just don't know how to get to the place of full forgiveness of this person who wronged me so traumatically in the past or so horribly in public or whatever it might be. And they ask for like, how do I know when I'm across the finish line of forgiveness? And forgiveness is very complex. It takes a long time to process, especially great trauma. But there is a, a place that you want to get to, which sort of serves as a spiritual finish line for the process of forgiveness. And here's what I say to those folks who are asking that. 
because we need to bless those who persecute us. We need to forgive one another as a church, right? Here's the, here's the line. If you've been wronged and you have offered forgiveness somehow, verbally, right? I, I forgive you. Whether it was received or not, and you've prayed for help from the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit to heal from the harm done to you. And if now today you can honestly say that you want God's best for that person who wronged you, then you've made it to that final phase of forgiveness. Now, it doesn't mean you want what they think is God's best or what you think is God's best. Lord, help them really learn the lesson they need to learn. That's what our heart wants us to do. But if you're actually at the place, by God's power alone, where you want the best, God's best for the person who wronged you, you've made it through the process of forgiveness. And this is hard. And let me read a quote from an author named Dan Hamilton on forgiveness. Listen to this. The church is called to do this, to be a place where this happens all the time. He says, Once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but in small sums over a year, done when I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past, done whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity when seeing her with another man, done when I praised her to others when I wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments but she never saw them. And her own payments were unseen by me, but I do know she forgave me. Forgiveness, he says, is more a matter than a matter of just refusing to hate someone. It's also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance to the offender. And then he says it's hard because, of course, it's painful. Think about where we learn most clearly about forgiveness. And here is his final line. He says this, Pain is the consequence of sin. There is no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness. The love that heals. Let me say it again. If you've been forgiven of your sins by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, it was costly. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness. And we are called to forgive one another and bless those who persecute us. That kind of community doesn't exist anywhere else. But the church is to be a different kind of city. Love one another. Bless those who persecute us. And some of us occasionally are going to need to do that even among our own church family. There will be times when some of you will sin against others of you. Or maybe I will sin against you or you will sin against me. And we need to practice the painful currency of forgiveness to model the gospel for the world. So, rule six, seek God's best for all. Take a deep breath, super deep breath. Two rules left, and they are pretty brief. Rule seven is rejoice and mourn. Rejoice and mourn. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Well, I I hope you had a chance to rejoice this week just with all the exciting things that were happening Uh, All the Bibles we were able to raise support for, for Brazil through the Missions Project. I had a really exciting chance to rejoice this week. One of the evenings after VBS, I was talking with Maddie Stankus 
And Maddie got to let me know that she was right there as a young girl decided that Jesus was her Savior for the first time in her life. Maddie was able to walk her through that process of coming to the place in your heart where Jesus is your Savior and you're not your own Savior anymore. And what I did was I put my high five in the air and I said, let's high five. And we high five because we rejoice with those who rejoice. Can we all rejoice at that news? High five. And then not 12 hours later, I received a text message from another Christian who let me know how much persecution he was facing for being a faithful Christian in this world. And I prayed for him. And we talked about it a little bit. See, it's a church family. Every day, trials, victories, struggles. We're a family. Every family knows what this is like. We are a family. We rejoice. Look at verse 15. We rejoice with those who rejoice. So every week you should rejoice once or twice or five times. And weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn because we're a family. So here, amen. Here's the challenge for us. Here's the challenge for us. If you're going to rejoice with those who rejoice, you need to get to know us. So you know why we're rejoicing. And if we're going to rejoice with you, we need to get to know you so we can share your joys and say amen to you. If you're going to mourn with those who mourn, you're going to need to get to know us so you know what we're mourning about and weeping about. And if we're going to mourn with you, you got to let us in a little bit with what you're struggling with or with how you failed you know who we are? We're, we're not a, a museum for saints. We're a hospital for sinners. We are a people who have admitted that we were sinners who needed a Savior. So you can admit your sins and confess your sins. And it's okay because Jesus paid it all. And so you can share that struggle and we can come alongside you with no shame because there's no condemnation left for you. Just we'll weep with you and we'll mourn with you and we'll pray for you. Because we're a family, and the banner over the family is love one another. If you really want to be a part of the prayer of rejoicing and weeping with us, one great easy way to do that is by looking in the bulletin and signing up for our prayer chain, where we regularly have updates on some of the people that we've been rejoicing about and praying for. So that's rule seven, rejoice and mourn. Which brings us to our final rule, rule eight. If the banner over God's family is love one another, if the house rules are putting each other first and loving each other, well, rule eight is live in harmony and humility. Live in harmony and humility. Look at verse 16, our last rule. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. All right, this one's pretty clear. We are a group of people who, apart from Jesus Christ, would have never known each other. God is making a new family on earth, and very few of you are matchets. I've got six matchets here. Myself, my wife, and our four matchet kids. But the rest of you are not matchets, but we are a new family in Christ from different locations, different countries, different personalities, different gifts, different abilities. Remember last week, we're different parts of the body. And so what we're going to do is not what the world does. The world tribalizes. 
on social media. You form your tribe. You cancel and shut out every voice you don't like. You only read from news sources that spin the news your way, not in the family of God. We are going to welcome people who are different than us. We are going to welcome strangers. The doors are going to be open. We are going to live in harmony with one another because we refuse to tribalize. So we're not going to be haughty. We're not going to look around the room thinking, I'm better than them. I'm better than them. We're going to be willing to associate with each other no matter what. Why? We associate with each other as a family, not because we chose to, but because Christ chose to add us into a family together. We've been adopted into God's family together. And the house rule, the banner over God's family, is love one another. It plays out in many ways, as we saw. We love, we honor, we share, we pray, we hope, we serve, we rejoice, we mourn, We're a family, a family of sinners saved by grace, grateful for Christ's sacrifice and grateful for our adoption into this family. Well, of course, when Paul wrote this, the people in Rome would have received it and thought, wow, that's a big challenging list. How in the world are sinners going to pull this off? How can we do it? Well, we have to remember that it's not our family, it's God's family. And all of these things fit the character of God. We are made in the image of a God who adds sinners into his family at great personal cost, the life of his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in our great gratitude for that sacrifice made so that we can be adopted, we're going to stand in contrast from the cities of man, characterized by selfishness and the strong taking advantage of the weak. The house rule for God's family is love one another. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, when we love, when we serve, when we pray, when we cry, with people we didn't even know apart from Jesus Christ, it shows the whole world that the gospel is true. Jesus Christ adds sinners to his family by grace through faith. And because he loved us first, the house rule for God's family is love one another. May God help us be the most loving family the world has ever seen for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Lord, you love us. You added us to your family by love. Lord, some of these rules are easy. Help us love beauty. That's easy for many of us, Lord. But help us abhor evil. Help us hate the sins that destroy our community and distract us from the glory of Jesus. Help us share and contribute. Help us get to know each other and cry with each other and rejoice with each other. And help us put each other first and not be haughty and think of ourselves as greater than one another. Help us be like Jesus to one another as you add to your family. And thank you that it's not about how good we are, but about how great and loving our Savior Jesus is. In love, you've adopted us into your family, so help us be the family that loves one another well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.